Hello. 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 And welcome to the Pioneers Post podcast. Social enterprise stories and conversations from across the world. Hi, I'm Bob Toost, co-founder of Practical Governance. Hi, I'm Matt Potts. I'm the founder of Camarados. Welcome to the Feelings Mutual, a podcast series where Maff and I are joined by guests from all backgrounds to discuss the concept of mutual aid and the proposition that it lies at the very heart of systems change and social justice. Mutual aid means that we look out for each other. You support me and I support you. In the wake of COVID-19, thousands of new groups have been set up on these principles. But have we lost the mutual in mutual aid along the way? Uh, we're over the moon that everyone's talking about mutual aid, but unfortunately, some of it is bollocks. We hope this series will have open and honest discussions from all perspectives around the theme of mutual aid. Let's go for it. Uh, hello and welcome, everyone. I'm Angela Fell, uh, and I'm here with my co-host, Vidya Alexson. Hello, everyone. Welcome to this special episode of the Feelings Mutual podcast. You may be wondering where Maff and Bob are. Well, we've locked them in the dungeon whilst we take over. Today, we'll be speaking to Neil McEnroy, the Chief Executive at Claire's, the Centre for Local Economic Strategies, and Jess Steele, a serial community entrepreneur and the director of Jericho Road Solutions. Jess and Neil, welcome. It's lovely to have you both here today, and I'm really excited about this conversation. We've done a little bit of email communication with a bit of provocation, and that's where we're going to start. The question that we set was how best to improve places, particularly those places that are disadvantaged on conventional metrics. And one thing that we certainly all agreed on is that a reset or a recalibration is required. So I'm going to invite both of you really to talk a little bit about your work and how you see you contributing to the reset and calibration of that. So Neil, would you like to tell us a little bit about who you are, what you do and how the work that you do contributes in this field? Yeah, surely. Uh, hello, everyone. Um, I'm Neil McEnroy. I'm the Chief Executive of the Centre for Local Economic Strategies, the UK's national organisation for local economies. And I think in terms of how best to improve place and the life of people in those places, I think we need to look at the uh, systemic nature of the injustices upon people and communities. And in that, I think the fundamentally is around how the economy works and who it works for. And, and, and certainly for myself, the fundamental features of all economies is wealth. Who has it? Where does it go? And how do more people get their hands on it? And that um, needs a significant reset and a recalibration. And I think that economic dimensions of place and the questions of wealth uh, impinge upon the, the extent to which public services can function effectively. If there is huge amount of pain, social injustice, then I think that creates huge demands and pressure on public services. So we need to consider the reset, the rewiring of the economic system so that everyone everywhere has uh, the opportunities, uh, the life chances, the possibilities of achieving their true potential. Thank you, Neil. Jess, do you want to come in on that? Yeah, so thanks for inviting me. I'm Jess Steele from Jericho Road Solutions. Uh, I'm based in Hastings, been here for the last 17 years. I support community groups around the country as well with quite ambitious land and building projects that, that are transformational for their neighbourhoods. And in Hastings, I've been involved in trying to improve the place which I think is a really interesting concept. What does it mean to improve a place, particularly in many places like Hastings, where 
there's this twin challenge of, on the one hand, fairly horrendous dereliction, really serious 40 years of kind of rotting buildings in the centre of our town. And on the other hand, real threat of gentrification, a threat that the only solution to improve this place is to displace the people who live there now and attract new people to, to Hastings. And it's what we've been trying to work against in Hastings. So is there an alternative to that sort of false choice between you know, gentrify or, or just decline? And um, where we're trying to get to with that is to take buildings into community ownership and squeeze them for their social value, their use value, and make sure that they will stay affordable forever. So we cap the rents both on workspace and on homes. So I think that when we're thinking about improving places, levelling up, um, tackling left-behind neighbourhoods, all of these phrases are all as if we all know somehow that there's some agreed future that we're heading towards. And I dispute that. I don't think that places that have been left behind want to catch up with those specific prosperous places because wealth isn't just about money. Wealth is about each other. It's about community. It's about the way we live. I agree totally with Neil that we need a reset. Um, I suppose the questions, the devil is in the detail. What is that reset about? And for me, it's about kind of whole new social norms that see the economy much more in a much more diverse way. So one of the reasons we kind of invited both of you was, you know, a caricature, I'm going to say that, sort of sense of maybe one of you coming from a bottom-up perspective and the other from a more top-down perspective and in the last podcast we were exploring how those two perspectives can and questioning whether they can come together so you've both talked about rewiring the economic system in different ways you know Jess what you're doing in Hastings is changing the ownership of wealth and assets in, in the local community and Neil a lot of your work is trying to do something similar in a different way and different scale and I wondered if you could both give your thoughts about how do we go about rewiring the economic system? And what is the balance between what happens at the grassroots work versus what happens more systemically by larger actors, you know, governments, large anchor institutions? How do you see those two working together, if at all? Yeah, I mean, you know, I think for me, you know, bottom up, top down, it's very sort of an older an older kind of way of splitting things up. I, I kind of think we're talking about system change here and it's top down and bottom up and a lot of our work is equally bottom-up, trying to affect change in the vertical and in power. They're also top-down in how we change the vertical power structures as well. So, you know, I think there's two things there. But I think all places are made up of, you know, public, social and uh, commercial activity. And I think what we would say in terms of this rewiring is let's get right into the the detail, the granular of how a place functions and who functions for. And in that, community wealth building is a laser-like focus on how an economy functions and how we make it truly functions for communities and for people. And in that, it says, let's make sure that the wealth in all its forms in a place truly lands with people, with families, with neighbourhoods, in communities and through the streets. Because the one of the fundamental ills we have is that too much of our wealth is extracted outside of our communities by distant shareholders, by large corporates. And th that is one of the fundamental bits of the rewiring that we need to start to change. We need to start to create new ways of connecting 
economic and social activity, or particularly economic activity, with the people and with communities. And that's what community wealth building does, splitting up questions of wealth in terms of workforce, in terms of ownership of land and property, in terms of where public sector money is spent, in terms of ownership models, in terms of community ownership of economic activity, and in terms of a financial ecosystem that is pro-social and pro-people. So what community wealth building seeks to do is not just to think about social value, but to make the whole economy social and working truly for our people. And ownership, ownership is fundamental here. We need to make sure that there's a more direct, intimate relationship between those that produce goods and services and also who own uh, that activity. And so the flourishing of community businesses, social enterprises, co-ops, democratic ownership are all fundamentally important because that re rewires a system that we as individuals, we as communities, we as neighbourhoods, we as part of a collective place, all have a direct stake in the economy and the fortunes of that economy. So that economic democracy is, I think, a fundamental underpinning element to how we truly create places that work for people and to deal with these long-standing ills that we've had for years, as well as the new threats that face us. Um, we know from the past that regeneration, social programs, social renewal, they've done, they've taken some of the hard edges off the problem, but fundamentally it's left the systemic causes of injustice. It's retained them. It's not addressed them. And so community wealth building and what we broadly need to do in terms of progressives is to fundamentally rewire the actual fundamental economic system to allow more people to have a stake in it. Yeah, I'd agree with with most of what Neil said there, um, if not all of it. The, for me, this is about values. So that development and regeneration led by shared values, which are pro-social, um, making the whole the whole economy social and recognizing the fact that the economy is social but if you ignore that then you end up with social ills so the anti-extraction point really is really important that so much of the wealth is being sucked away and that takes us back to the place question because it's this concept of who and what is tethered to the place you know, rather than the concept of massively mobile capital, globally mobile, ranging the world, looking for profits. In contrast to that are a number of organisations and, and types of, of actors who are actually tethered to their place. And that's where I say it's, this isn't about sectors. It's about values, because obviously local government is very much tethered to place. Other anchor institutions as well. Uh, um, are as well but so of course in our communities and I think the other the, the granular point that Neil made I think is so important I spend my life kind of straining and stressing against the strategic right so I, I think of myself as quite a strategic thinker I'm perfectly capable of thinking big picture but strategic too often means far away so it's not about top down necessarily, it's about far away. So we have this ridiculous situation where we have things called local enterprise partnerships. And the one that's relevant to, to us in Hastings covers the whole of Essex, Kent and East Sussex. 
in what way is that local? It's an insult to the word local. The granularity here is, a, is for me, about fine grain, and that's about neighbourhoods. And people worry that neighbourhood is too small a scale, but there are nearly 33,000 neighbourhoods in England, uh, at least. That's just defining them um, kind of administratively. So there is a way to focus at the very fine grain level, but also to consider solidarity. And how, so how can we make change at that fine grain at the same time as linking up together to tackle things that can't be changed at neighbourhood level? Yeah, really, really interesting there. You talked about uh, developing shared values. How do you think we get there? Well, in in Hastings, what we're trying to do in in our buildings is to create a situation where it's normal to know your neighbours and it's normal to play a role in the kind of economic, social and physical upkeep of your neighbourhood. Now, (laughs) Neil might think that, well, that's something the council should be doing. But I really believe that the reset is about changing some of the ways we think about who should do what. And in neighbourhoods where it is normal, both to know your neighbours and to look after the place, people live better lives. The way we do that specifically is through selection criteria. So our, our selection criteria for both for tenants, both for the homes and for the workspace, about need absolutely that they need affordable space but they're also about a local connection but also about a kind of enthusiasm for this ethos of changing things so willing to make a contribution willing to be part of something bigger together and the idea is if you use those selection criteria what we found is that people from all backgrounds want want that so we get diversity but we also get a group of people who are like a beacon, I suppose, showing showing the way that you can have high quality homes and workspaces and, and uh, public realm if you buy into this kind of mutuality. Can I come in there? Is that okay? Yeah, yeah, of course. I, th- I think it's. I think the question of values is really important, and I think you know we need to appreciate that there's one set of values that stride and intrude on our lives more than any other, and that's market values. And so we see that in terms of the commodification of our lives. So the market splits and dices us up in terms of being consumers, not citizens. And and similarly, in the public sector, you see huge outsourcing of key elements of service areas, which actually shouldn't have been anywhere near the market, like care, in my view. And then we've got personal values, and those are values that we personally have, which are not public, they're in there in our domestic personal view of the world and the values that we have. And then there's public values. And public values are, f- are fundamentally important because that's the collective space. It's a shared space for us all. It could be the town hall. It could be a public service. It could be a public park. These are spaces that are unique in society because it's kind of saying we are a collective. And in that way, the state and those public values are a bureaucratic manifestation of community. And so I think it's important to think about values in a different way and how there is one dominant one being market values. And in terms of the moment we're in, we clearly in a moment where market values are not just eroding our lives in the sense how we have a relationship with each other. I think they're arguing the very basis to humanity itself in terms of the planet. And so in that moment, what do we do? 
we need to collectivize like mad. We need to commune like mad. And we need to do great things, be it in Hastings that Jess is doing or anywhere else. And once we get that to work, we need to sing about it and we need to show it. And we need to go again and again and again, because that's how we chip away at those market values. Can I come back on that? I think that's really helpful. Um, and I totally agree about the dominance of market values and which prioritise exchange value and transaction. I'd like to just explore. So you said about public values being a bureaucratic manifestation of community, the thing that we've created. And I can see that. But the state isn't just about those public service values, is it? It's also about violence, surveillance, imprisonment. The state often behaves in ways that do not feel that they are about collectivising or, or any of those good things. And I wonder whether perhaps, I suppose where we're heading with this is there are public values, there are some, but the collective space is about commons values. The state, that bureaucratic manifestation doesn't have to be the only way we manifest our common collective values. And so I'm not, I'm not arguing necessarily against the state, or certainly against any particular part of um, public values, but I just think it's not the only. I think there is a distinction, potential distinction between that broader version of public values and the more horizontal collectivist commons values. Hello, I'm Tim West, founding editor of Pioneers Post, and I'm interrupting today's podcast for 30 seconds to let you know that you can get access to thousands more resources, interviews and stories on pioneerspost.com as a subscriber. Subscribing is a really important way that you can support us. As a social enterprise ourselves, we rely on the income from subscriptions so we can produce more stories that help our growing global community of purpose-driven social entrepreneurs and impact investors to do good business better. So please take a moment to find out more at pioneerspost.com slash subscribe. And now back to the podcast. I just wanted to come in and ask a, a question for both of you about why there seems to be so much fear among public bodies when they see communities kind of come together. So we talked about this, you know, the need for mass collectivization. I mean, Neil, you said commune and collectivize like mad, which I love, and that a lot of that activity is foreshadowing the bigger rewiring that we, we're after. But I think, I mean, we just recently brought together about 40 community leaders. I think Jesse was one of them to talk about community power and, you know, what could change things to enable more community power. And the overriding, apart from weariness which is unsurprising the overriding feeling was a sense that everything that's achieved at community level tends to be achieved in spite of the existing system rather than because of the existing system so there is no sense among most community leaders and there are obviously some exceptions certain places are better at this the general sense is that the state is not currently enabling this and i think other other anchor institutions maybe fall into that category whether that's the nhs or or others so how do we you know, if what we need is more collectivization, more people connecting with each other at local level, how do we change that fundamental problem that there currently seems to be? I think there's two different parts. When we talk about the system, I mean, there are obviously many different parts, but it's worth distinguishing between the system in which the market is overweening, which we were just talking about, but the wider system, which is massively problematic in every way and then the system for dealing with it so the system for getting money for good projects you know whether that's through funders or through government or whatever the system for allowing good things to happen 
you know, those those systems. And, and I'm afraid that I've spent 30 years struggling with some of those systems. And the, the frustration about them is that it's really hard to get across what's wrong with it without going into huge detail about particular, you know, about a particular funding source or a particular systemic process. It is difficult to be really clear about what's wrong with it, but what's underneath all of, of what's wrong with it is that fear or lack of trust. There's a, a lack of belief. So to, just to give one small example, we're rescuing uh, this enormous building that's been derelict for nearly 40 years. We're doing that entirely transparently with conservation-led approach, uh, you know, everything about what we're trying to do with it is great. And yet we have something like 36 planning conditions. Every single one of those takes huge amount of work before we can get it signed off. And it just feels like, will you just let us get on with this? So I think there's that lack of trust. And that comes back down to a failure to distinguish. It's not any particular person's failure, but an inability to to use the concept of kind of mission and purpose. Really great point. I think I think we talk about the system and the and I like the distinction that Jess made, but the let's talk just about the state system and planning system and so forth. Is that what we have here is a public values have been eroded and there's a fear. There's a fear within the state and our public value driven bureaucracies. And that we have had years upon years upon years of austerity, years of marketization of our public services, years of competitive tendering, outsourcing of public services. They've been whittled away at by market forces. And what that can happen is that they're just trying to protect what they've got. And there is examples where a community organization or a social enterprise has ended up delivering some public service and then a few years later, or ends up buying a building and then a few years later it ends up in private sector, extractive capitalist hands, backdoor outsourcing. Now that's a, that happens on occasion, very few you know, can happen. That creates a fear. And so our sisters and brothers that work directly within the system, within a public sector, be it councillors or officers, there is an overriding pall of worry about how are they going to provide with a huge tsunami of demand on their public services and how do they preserve public values. And I think that's where some of the, the problems come in from us working in the communities trying to do stuff. And I would also say that there is a number of local authorities and public bodies who now know this and they're starting to think and act and behave in different ways. And that's what the movement around community wealth building is doing, both in terms of local authorities, but also other bits of the public sector, including the NHS. And this sense that it's not a threat to work with communities. There's no fear there. We just need to create processes to enable them into the fold to play a co-producing co-designing game in terms of how we rewire the economic system and you know it's interesting Wigan you had the Wigan deal which was a public service contract between the community and the local state we now have the Wigan community wealth deal which is extending that into community and community ownership of assets and so forth so 
I think we need to, for me, I completely agree with everything that's been said. I just think we need to appreciate the fear that's in the local state and how public values have been eviscerated and how that has created a particular set of behaviours on occasion, which means communities are fighting against the system and things happen in spite of the system. But the system is not the local state. The system here is the forces of market forces and right-wing ideologies that is forcing the hand of the local state to act in that particular way. Yeah, and I, I obviously I'm going to have to come in on the Wigan deal, being being a Wigan citizen. You know, thanks for uh, yeah. t- talking about that in that way. And I think it kind of links too to, you know, some of the comments that you've made, Neil, about people being in pain, because I think we're all in pain. I think yeah. people who work in public services over the years who've had to kind of cut services, do more. I think some of the fear roots in that. And and I'm also interested, I think it links to with the idea of shared values that I know you developed those, which is what Jess was talking about. Because what one of my very, very fundamental disagreements at the time when I worked for Wigan Council when the deal was introduced was about this idea of a relationship between the citizen and the state. And I felt very much at that time that the contract should have been with each other in neighbourhoods and in communities. And now, you know, kind of, I was absolutely cheering my head off when I saw that Wigan was going to become a community wealth building authority. But it's how we opened the door, I think. So I think you talked about uh, you, you kind of raised about like kind of opening the door for citizens to get into the town hall. But I think the town hall has got much to learn from the values that exist within community. And it's how we get into that like liminal space of exploring our strengths and our weaknesses and where we're paralysed. That's an interesting point about the town hall, um, the porosity of the town hall. So it's not just about people getting into the town hall. It's about some of the people in the town hall getting out yeah. Um, yeah. and spending some time on the porch, as I call it, <laughs> you know, spending some time hanging yeah. out with people rather than canvassing if they're politicians or going on a visit uh, if there's an officer. I mean, I totally accept the austerity point. On the one hand, I do totally accept it, and it, it is to do with austerity. On the other hand, I've been doing this since the mid-1990s, so all through the Labour years, which were not austere in the same way. And there is something about party politics here as well. So in terms of politicians, the, the distinction between politicians and community activists, which there shouldn't be a distinction in my mind at local level, and I remember back in Deptford in the 1990s being told, you know, don't organise in my ward. <laughs> and I, I wanted to say, yeah. stop pontificating in my yeah. neighbourhood. You know? yeah. <laughs> so there, there, there's a longer standing division or, or issue here, but austerity has made it vastly worse and kind of changed how we see it, maybe. I think it's important to, the best collaboration I see between public sector, if you like, and and community is where they kind of know where they're going and what they're planning and what the problem is. And I think even myself, I find myself sometimes getting into this 
community v local state sort of debate. And in a sense, I don't think the best thing is when they come together to collaborate against the real forces of evil. Yeah. And and I think new municipalism, the kind of European global movement, says that this is not about the state or the community. This is about the state and community together to take on the forces that seek to marketize and commodify our lives. And I think I think in England particularly, there's a tendency for political parties, some political parties for their own end, to set this up as a like state bad community good and keep the market out of it. Whereas actually it's state and community are both good. They're both benevolent in essence. What is really problematic here is the force of extractive fossil fuel capitalism and they need to align themselves together. And so we can't be forced into false opposition with each other in communities in the state because that's only serving those who just want to keep blithely going on with what they've been doing before in terms of the market. So I think there's a maturing, I think, to be had in the relationship between the state, local state and communities. And I see lots of great examples of that. And they're all in their own journey, including North Ayrshire, Wigan, Preston, wherever. They're all different elements of this journey and dialogue and communication, but it's all to the good. And ultimately, they're brothers and sisters together uh, in place, fighting against something a hell of a lot more systemically problematic in terms of how market capitalism functions. And Neil, do you see any commonality in these places, whether it's North Ayrshire or Wigan or Barcelona even, that are seeing the value of bringing state and community together and building trust between those two rather than some of the, the big society rhetoric? Whilst a lot of positive things were unleashed potentially by a big society, it, it did present itself as community versus state or as an alternative to the state rather than the two working together. So. Is there something that these places have in common? Is it something their leaders have in common? What is driving some places to get this and to work differently with communities? It's a really good question. I, th- I think I think there's two main things, really. There's a, a majority or at least a strong collective consciousness that the problems are how the economy is run and who it runs for. So there's an understanding, if you like, a political consciousness in its broadest sense that there's a political economy issue here and that force of ex- wealth extraction so are a damaging force. So there's a kind of, in the ether of that place, there's an understanding that, hold on here, market capital is not really working for us, this plays very well. And secondly, there's an honesty of conversation. The leaders that we work with, I think most of them, are extremely honest politicians who are prepared to have honest conversations and be open to communities and other forms of conversations. Um, so. I think that's it's a, it's a sense of like knowing who the enemy is and also a sort of a set of honest conversations. And you see it also in uh, health institutions and other forms of public sector anchor organizations. You see some leadership teams of health boards or NHS trusts who sort of get this and understand that to reform their place, they're going to have to work closely with communities. And, and in all that, but yeah, I think I'm more encouraged than I've ever been because I think that People are seeing the flaws in the economic market system and people are seeking to build back a way which doesn't go back to the old normal. So there's a lots of uh, hankering, eagerness, desire to build a better country, better place, better community, better locality. And I think that's a really, really heady force and we need to grab that energy at this moment in time. It's so important.
just to come back on one thing on this, it's really around the markets. That future has a role for the market. So we've, I mean, what you've been saying is the market is the enemy. I just wanted to to kind of question that. So actually the future, the future that we're all moving towards is about a different kind of market with broad-based democratic ownership and, you know, a, a regenerative economy rather than a, an extractive one. But it's, it's not a future without the market. Is that right? Or am I, am I not hearing you yeah, right? Yeah, the, the market needs reform and the market needs to serve us, not corporate capitalism. And so the markets, the social construct, the markets we should shape wherever we want. At the moment, those market forces are looking after themselves, particularly the big players in it. So we need a reform of the market. And the balance between what is delivered through the market and what is delivered by the state, I think, needs to be recalibrated. That's part of the reset. I mentioned care before. I, I don't believe the market should be anywhere near care. Uh, I don't believe the railways should be anywhere near the market. I don't believe water should be anywhere in the market. I think some of those foundational elements of the economy should be not out with the market. But clearly, there's a space for the market. And But we need to make sure that it is working. The whole market is social and it's working for us and we construct it in that way. And Jess, I was just going to come to you on that. In that, you know, you've run a number of community businesses. You're sort of at the forefront of that movement. It's obviously a movement that is that uses trading and the market as a as a mechanism for delivering social benefit and for changing places. So, where do you see the role of the market going forward? And is it, as Neil described, returning it to being much more of a social construct? Is that what we're all talking about here? I think that that we use trading to achieve independence as much as anything. So. Trading allows us to create independence and sustainability, which means we're not at the whim of um, philanthropy or, or political decision making. So, yeah, it allows us to create that, that sense of self-direction, um, that we can make choices. So Neil's talking about reforming the market and that the state, I, I assume that what that means is that the state will reform and regulate in various ways market behaviours. And I think that that's important. There's also another way of, of influencing or impacting on the market, which is to build uh, market activity, business activity of various kinds that, that is different, you know, that, that is value-based. Um, so, you know, with our capped rents, for example, those rents still make surplus. They just make a, a reasonable amount of surplus and they keep the property whether it's a, a home or a workspace affordable for the for the people who use it so it, what i suppose i'm saying is we need to create and i think this is what neil says well collectivized like the mad is partly about create loads and loads of examples of how there is an alternative it doesn't have to be that way because so much of this is about people feeling you know the horrible tina that there is no alternative and people feeling like this is just it this is this is what we've got this is there's nothing we can do and so the the helping people to build agency in their own both in their own lives but particularly collective agency the, the sense that we together can change things is probably the most important thing that any of us can can do on a day-to-day -day basis you know individual by individual family by family community by community building a strong sense that things can be different and you can start now just on that and about the market i completely agree again and i think we need to be clear about the the issue in the market or the type of market capitalism we're talking about here we do need a plurality of business ownership forms that go from your 
embedded local private business through to cooperatives, mutuals, and so forth. They are the generative businesses, and that's how they, they, they and effectively operate in the market and relational to place. The issue here is around this late capitalism, neoliberal capitalism, where we've got large, distant, stakeholder-driven corporates who overly dominate our lives. Capitalism has become so adept that it now is concentrated in fewer, fewer hands. And the way to overcome that is to encourage plurality of business forms, which are in some way generative um, within our local place and our countries. And so that, that, that's the, the key thing here. And that's how the work of developing community businesses, social enterprises, co-ops is so, so fundamentally important, and particularly around land and property, because land and property is the basis to many, many economies and uh, how you accrue wealth and value in perpetuity. And it's back to Jess's point about the, the commons. And a final thing to say is that we need to be very careful about different sectors. And that's, that's why I am less keen on community delivery of public services. It seems to me that why is we focusing lots of attention on public services, where the real issue is retail, land, property. We should be thinking about community ownership in those sectors a lot, lot more than what traditional community involuntary sector focus on is trying to deliver a little bit of public services. That's, that's neither here nor there. The big prize is those big bits of the economy which are overly driven by stakeholder um, corporates. And we need to increase the, the plurality of business forms and ownership forms within a whole range of other sectors in the commercial economy. That's the real prize. Not having debates about which communities getting getting contracts to deliver some public service. That seems like a very minor prize compared to what we should be really going after. I agree in theory, definitely land and property. Um, that's where power is held, in my view. It's where it's stored. But the, the point about public services, some community organisations try to, to bid to deliver what we would all see as a public service. But a lot more of them try to get support to deliver something that is not delivered by the public sector. So it's a service or a project work with people. So it's a social kind of activity, but it's not, not currently and perhaps never was delivered by the public sector. Do you see what I mean? That not, so it's not just about, we, you know, on the one hand, you might take on a library, which clearly is a public service. That's one thing. But if you want to do something which is about um, mutual aid around health, do we think that mutual aid around health should be a public service? Maybe it should, but it isn't. So the group wants to do it. I mean, in the past or in publications that Cliff's written are quite clear. I mean, there's a massive role for community voluntary sector to deliver some public services, which only the community, the community are best placed because of the intimacy, because of the specific knowledges, the particular relationships they have with the with the user group or with the community. So the best place to do it. In fact, in my own personal life, I'm involved in one of those in terms of a local park. Um, and I think we're best placed to do it rather than the local state. But my point is that, that in, the, in the bigger scheme of things, that's really important and a good fill up, but it's not, it's not, it should be a massive focus of attention. I think our energies on that, but mostly should be diverted much more towards land, property, um, significant ownership around the commercial economy to much greater extent than we're hitherto focused on. 
Neil, you made such a great point there and we could have a whole kind of podcast on that. But we're coming towards the end, even though I could sit and listen and be part of this for a very long time. So quickly, if we just kind of give you 60 seconds each to summarise, what will make the change? And if we are looking to a reset, what needs to happen next? Yeah, I, I think there's many, many fantastic examples of rewiring happening right this very minute and every single day across the UK. And that is horizontal power. And we need to, organisations like Power to Change and so forth are so important in celebrating all that work, showcasing that work. And we go again and again and again and building up that horizontal power. And that will affect change within the vertical power. And we will get the wider system change. That's what we need to do. We're going to collectivise that mad do those experiments, get them to work and go again, again and again. I think it's the only way. And I, and I think that's what, when we finish this call, we should all be getting on and doing again. Yeah, yeah. So you're calling for a collectivisation of horizontal power. Is that right, Neil? That's that's a very good summary. Thank yeah, you. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and Jess, Jess, what about you? I think Neil's right. There are lots of examples, both in, the, in local government and in communities, uh, which are which we need to share, not just as case studies, but in a kind of more real way, so that we can encourage other councils to become much more Preston and a little bit Wigan. Um, and we can encourage other community groups and people in neighbourhoods to feel that they can make change. And the, the way people feel they can make change is when they see other people like them making change. So I, I totally agree that we should um, build up a more infrastructure around solidarity. And actually that started, I think that's one of the things about lockdowns is that I've spent a lot more time during the last year with people from around the country um, than I did previously. It's so much easier now to share. It needs resourcing, not just by power to change going around and collecting case studies, but by resourcing people in councils and in communities to be not just allowed but encouraged to learn from other people in the rest of the country. Yeah, so sharing stories, sharing approaches and growing power through and practice through that, showing others what we can do and what is possible and building on it. Let's do it. It's been absolutely fascinating and we've covered so much ground from you know, reform of the market to growing horizontal power, you know, the whole rewiring of the economic system. It's been really fascinating and I think if I think back to where we left off the last podcast with you know the question of can we build a system with it with a shared set of values around around mutualism it does feel like we're we've taken that on a step further as to how you might go about doing that and some of the first steps and some of the things we'd have to really challenge and tackle if we were going to get there so a really big thank you Neil and Jess for for joining us and taking the time to share all of your knowledge and thinking on these topics it's been great thank you very much thank you thank you thank you both Thanks to Jess and Neil for joining us today. I hope you enjoyed the conversation. This podcast has been produced in partnership with Pioneers Post. You can find more information at pioneerspost.com. If you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to subscribe. Did you? Have you got the keys for the dungeon?